there's a lot of parts of the ocean where there are, are, are trenches and and um, rocks and different beings. But if you stand on the shore and you can see just maybe a slice, the kinetic unraveling can be witnessed. Each element of it, its own lesson, its own masterclass. If you're wondering how a difficult relationship might end, watch what happens when the wave crests and all of the all of the power gets released into smaller and smaller interactions until you can no longer perceive the pain. This is AI Murmurings, a podcast that explores intersections of contemporary art and artificial intelligence. I'm Carolyn Strauss, director of Slow Research Lab, a creative research and curatorial platform based in the Netherlands. This podcast was produced in partnership with the Australian Institute for Machine Learning and Sia Furler Institute, both at the University of Adelaide in South Australia. It's part of a first-of-its-kind artistic research program called Art Intelligence. Today I'm speaking with Siobhan K. Cronin, who's joining the podcast from San Francisco in the United States. Siobhan, welcome to AI Murmurings. Thanks for having me here. So this conversation is going to be a little bit different than the ones I've been having here over the past several weeks. Until today, I've focused on talking with people from the contemporary art world about perspectives and practices that might inform the fields of machine learning and artificial intelligence. Uh, but today is different because while you, Siobhan, are by all accounts a very accomplished artist, over the past four years, you've been delving deeply into the world of data science and engineering. And currently, you're an engineering manager at a Silicon Valley startup. So, Siobhan, I'd love to hear you start out by talking about your background to help our listeners get acclimated to the life experience as an artist that you bring to your work as an engineer. As many times as I've tried to, to look at my art life from different vantage points, I really have traced the arc of a dancer. Like a lot of dancers, I started from the outside. I started from the, the, what, we, what we looked like in the mirror, what was happening on the stage. And it took me a while to start finding my way to the inner the inner game. And a lot of that work happened through showing up to Deborah Hayes' doorsteps, a mm. choreographer that I worked with, and having her choreograph states of mind and sequences of experience as the score. And that shifted the perspective inwards for many years. I worked in New York and was a movement research fellow and was in the downtown scene and really getting in, into this terrain of where does the impulse to move begin and starting to find that there's that receptive beginning, the, the listening, the listening to one's own desires, listening to the environment that precedes the action. 
And once I fell in there, then I think it got a little lost for a while. I was like, is this still dance? Am I doing dance or am I doing... So for a while, I called it experiential geography, um, mapping the terrains of these receptive topologies. And I think that's just to anchor where I am and how I arrive at this um, word artist. <laughs> Recently, you wrote on your blog that you learned from decades as an artist how important studio practice is. Yeah. And you have this kind of paragraph where you talk about how central that is to the development of the imagination and how central the imagination is to the subconscious. And you were asking this question, why are we keeping this all of this so far from engineers, you know, the, the rich cultural traditions um, that excite the mind body and that from your experience as an artist lead to innovation. One of my favorite memories from studio practice or witnessing someone else's studio practice came from when I was at the Santa Fe Art Institute for three months doing a residency. And at that point in my life, I had spent so many years in the studio with others. I'd spent a lot of time um, in theater and in dance, um, really engaging in, this, in this, this collective practice. And I'd gone to Santa Fe to do a, like a private practice, just me in the studio. And I remember, I don't, I mean, and I'd had like solo, I'd made solo works. I'd been in, like, I used to go to the Mark Morris studio in Brooklyn and like dance around by myself and make solos. I'd done so, or I would, or would incubate and do research for myself and then bring it to my dancers or collaborators. But this was the longest where I was just going to really be in the studio every day by myself. And there I was alongside sculptors, painters, poets, and these people had years of private practice. These were disciplines. Mm. They had practices where they were like, the assumption is you will be by yourself for most of the time. And maybe you'll do a collaboration every, you know, full moon, which was the inverse of like this, like theater practice I'd have. And there's one sculptor in particular, Ted Carey. And I would, I would just watch him watching his sculptures and I would just watch him look, look away, drink some water and spend hours with his own work. And I say that because he was working. That was all studio practice, um, sleeping mm. in the studio, um, mm. taking the walk. And, and that I didn't know it at the time, but that was the beginning for me of telling a story to myself of the power of my subconscious, the power of nonlinearity, um, looking ensconced to see something more clearly. Like some of these things that I didn't even know at the time, but it was mm. like the beginning inkling of, What's, what's the iceberg that I'm not seeing? What, what would that look like for engineers in engineering culture? Or, or perhaps not even engineering culture, but in a culture of artists and engineers working together? The first step is to, I would think, have engineers even witness what I'm describing, how studio practice looks like in the art world, and yeah. have artists maybe examine how engineers are working in their scrum cycles and these two week cycles to maybe look for those pockets and say, well, if I was in your, as a sculptor, if I saw what you were doing, maybe I, I would, um, I would sit this way with the material before I coded. Maybe I would just sit back and observe my code and breathe mm. deeply for three minutes, um, which I know some dancers would propose. Um, so, you know what I mean? Just like that, a little bit of witnessing would be the starting <clears throat> Yeah, which is maybe something like with this project in 
Adelaide, the art intelligence project that could happen in, ter in terms of the residency and the artists being there and opening up space for the engineers to, to witness the artist. The problem or the issue, as you know, I talk about it a lot at Slow Research Lab, is just that it's a practice, that it should be a practice. It shouldn't just be a one-time being exposed to a master class. It should have a durational aspect. The word social practice just keeps coming up to me more and more and more mm -hmm. as I think about what is also, is also happening in an engineering organization. I talk about that product cycle, but there is this parallel world of um, through a series of clarif clarifying questions, whiteboarding, um, memos, um, um, code review, the engineers are collectively building this imaginary sculptural representation of the flow of information in our system. And we have to do that. So if a person were to come to us and say, I want to build a new feature, we have to be able to run our fingers along the existing flows of information to see what might have to change to provision that feature. And it isn't always just, software to me isn't always like, you have like this, this robot and you just stick another arm on it and it does something. Well, you have to wire that arm to a controller that maybe is very in a very different part of the robot, you know, to use the metaphor, um, that maybe that controller controls many other things. And mm -hmm. so maybe now it needs to be abstracted even further to provide for the information for the new arm. And I am starting to feel the connection of studio practice of that being with dancers and feeling out the like, it, the end doesn't feel right or the transition doesn't feel right. And, and we're just moving arms and, and then someone feels something from earlier in the piece that we could bring back or that there's something we have yet to even, a part of the space we have yet to activate. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and similarly, I see them holding the whole machinery of the dance, the full start, middle and end and all of the layers of meaning of the dance and then tracing our fingers along that. Mm. And so this is where a lot of overlap I'm seeing. And it's not in the code base. It's in our representation. They call it wetware, the, 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 um, the imagination that, that makes the software, our representation of the system. Mm. Um, and that is a collective practice. Mm -hmm. This became to me the draw as to why I shifted my art practice mm. to this space. I feel like what you were just describing about the artist-engineer collaboration, or any collaboration for that matter, is the importance of cultivating practices of listening. For the last episode of the podcast, I had a conversation with Monica Narula of Rux Media Collective in Delhi. And we ended actually on the note of listening. And of course, we've been saying for years that this is one of the most essential tools of slow research. Monica ended the interview by quoting a writer from the Cyber Mahala Ensemble in Delhi who said, 
Fearless speech requires fearless listening. We ended the last podcast there, so I wonder if you might like to pick up on where she left off. About the listening part, but also what fearless speech Mm -hmm. is and means to you. I'm sitting with fearless listening and looking at receptivity more broadly and the invitation to be changed in the moment by others and maybe even to be softly eroding the knowledge of otherness. The fearlessness for me is very curious as I wonder what are we fearing? And I've thought about this in the level of moving through the world or moving through social dynamics. I've been thinking about who, who is given the privilege of, of speech? Who, whose voice do I invite in that has the authority or power to influence me? And this is really one of the frontiers of, of decolonizing my own mind that I've found most fruitful lately has been looking at why is it that a chosen family member or friend um, can give me feedback on my life that would shape the course of my life, but a person walking by in the street maybe is relegated a little further away. Mm. And I'm sure there's pragmatic social reasons for some of that and maybe social cohesion or persona cohesion to maintain such boundaries. And I've learned a lot about creating boundaries. I've also learned about how arbitrary some of them can be and how intentional they can be. And so I've been looking at in my physical practice as as a dancer, how might I redraw those lines of influence? I can call that listening but really redrawing the lines of what in the space or what in my memory or what in my fantasies can influence my approach to being and my behavior in that moment and being very playful and bold. And I think there's fearlessness there. There's lines I can draw in the present moment and invite in up vents of my psyche that could make my dance so incredibly transformative that it might break me. So there's consequence. You can think of how much can you bring in? How much energy can you bring in? And yet the fearlessness is if I can expand that net and listen deeper or more broadly, or just more selectively, maybe a cross section that I've never thought to listen across before. Maybe I can speak to experience that hasn't been spoken to before. I think about this a lot in centering voices that have been historically oppressed in varieties of dimensions. How empowering I have felt in recent years to bring those stories to spaces perhaps in Silicon Valley that maybe have never heard of such queer artists of color from the downtown scene and voices that they had or shared videos of theirs in work in a presentation. Mm. and feeling how alive I feel in those moments. And I would call that fearless speech, fearlessly Mm. saying the risk of this being very divergent from what usually happens here, I'm going to. But I find that that fearlessness for me is bolstered by, but I've heard it, 
when I expanded my range of what I listened to and influenced me, I have a broader lineage now from which to speak. Something I hope you don't mind my talking about is your identity as a trans woman. And the reason I feel it's relevant to this conversation is because how much I know it has informed your thinking through all manner of binaries and ecologies, and because you literally have an embodied experience of knowing the world through the lens of plurality. And as we consider technologies like AI as having an increasing presence in our lives, as being more and more intricately enmeshed in our lives in a myriad of ways and spaces, it feels to me more and more crucial that lived experiences like yours are programmed into the technology. Could you talk about how you've been thinking about that? I've asked you questions about your dance practice and studio practice, um, but imagining what that might look like. Beautiful question. I'm going <laughs> to look at it from just... Maybe just to set the stage, it's been so delightful for me to come into my adulthood and realize why it is that trans knowing led to the development of the mind that I, the mind practice that I have, and, and see that it it was so much richer than I imagined when I was growing up. The story I had growing up was so, so enshrouded with um, violence and, and, and politics and this clamoring for the center, clamoring back to the central hearth where the, the normative voices gathered and the rest of us that got cast aside have to beg for acceptance back into. And to realize that while that was maybe the, the public dom dominant narrative, what happened for me on the individual organism level was that I had to observe inconvenient truths in the body of a child, my own self, that weren't named, that weren't spoken to. I had to render them in some way that I could start, make meaning, start making meaning of them. I built my own languaging system inside my body to make meaning of them. I conducted my own independent research to find myself in the cracks of books that didn't speak of our identities openly. I had to read through code and plays and poems and listen to the, the, the absence of voice in lyrics to find the potential of my own being. I didn't often find, and so I cultivated a mythology of my own possibility. I then cultivated it as a lifestyle to stay alive. And as voices did find their way to my ear and saw that there was a tapestry that I belonged to, then I found ways to translate my home speak of my body into this broader narrative of trans experience on the planet in our species. I am just now like four and a half years into the actual unpacking of that, settling into some of the actual beauty of trans identity, um, the actual mm. mind body beauty of having a biological sex in my mind 
that forever seeks out body it can't find mm-hmm. and as not a problem, but as like a beautiful binary star system that creates all this creative potential and energy. You've recounted this story to me about how there was this almost like a surge of energy when when in the course of your gender transition you experienced such a release of trauma that suddenly there was this almost insatiable sort of new level of curiosity about the world. Mm -hmm. You said, I wanted to know other dimensionality. Mm -hmm. And you described wanting to know how do trees perceive time? How does a quantum computer experience its own being? And you said that through that creative agitation, you actually started imagining a, an AI companion who would help you know those things in ways that you'd felt that maybe your body, your embodiment as a human, couldn't know those things. It was one of my first real desires upon that moment or upon crossing that threshold the threshold for me was calling off the search for the origin of my transness which i had embarked upon in order to do society's bidding i was going to find where it began and i was going to kill it because that's what society asked me to do Mm. and after decades of labor i discovered there's nothing to kill there's biological complexity in our species. And my body is an attestation of that. This is a manifestation of what we see across the species. But the desire emerged to find a companion that might have been able to see me and reflect me back to me when no one else could have. Maybe that was a little too late in the game to arrive at after I've crossed the threshold, but there was a strong desire for systems and perhaps they still could be cultural systems, but to be honest, I was raised in a culture and I was missed. So I'm interested in how we, we build our cultural artifacts, our tooling to support us in, in deepening our practices of care. So for me, the, the, the impulse to, to, find companionship with systems that track events over time and draw connections and relationships in events over time. That's something that most people in my life do not have the ability to do at that level of precision. And I believe that level of precision might be useful for exposing patterns that could be very helpful as feedback to humans. Mm. But now that I've moved into this path more, I have found that um, it really is a blend. I, I really say that I, I'm here to build human computer ecosystems that cross and form. And I don't believe that we should go any faster than feels right to us as a culture, as people. And but I don't feel that shying away 
from these tablature, from this, or this tablature, this record keeping and this temporality that's possible in computing systems simply because we're, we're afraid of how governments regulate data. I really believe in, in um, small scale solutions, building maybe networking that exists for five friends. There's, there's such possibility to mm. sidestep those scaled solution concerns mm. by just stepping back from associating technology with Facebook and global dominance. <laughs> I think it might be interesting for the listeners to know that long before these forays into relationships with technology, you actually work to cultivate similar kinds of relationships and co-presence and knowing with the natural world. Mm -hmm. As a dancer, you developed something called the Somatic Natural History Archive, which um, I encourage people to look on YouTube at some of the videos that you created in that context. Can you maybe tell about that project, that process, and what you were aiming, what you learned from it, not just what you were aiming to do, but really what you drew from it, and maybe what you continue to draw from it and apply into the work you're doing today? We talked about Deborah Hay. The work really began with her practice. When you perform a work of Deborah Hay's, you're, you're, you sign a contract to perform it daily three months in advance of premiering it. So you really live into the, the, the fiber and the space of the work. And I had set the performance date and then my partner Carl and I decided to go on this wild, like spontaneous uh, road trip across America as, as we had a chance to and the, the opportunity arose. And yet I'd signed this contract. And so I said, well, I'll just dance this dance across America mm. in campgrounds and <laughs> on riverbeds across the country. And here I was outside the studio performing this practice that invites so much information in, so much relational context, allowing, allowing all of it to inform the work. And I had some moments in that practice of realizing I'd never quite seen a tree in that way. I'd never seen a stone in that way, where in the moment of being with it, we created community and care. And for all I knew, perhaps I would, should, should spend the rest of my life loving that tree, being with that tree. And it felt that expansive. It felt that full. And I was very curious about how tightly I'd held to the raft of humanity and how perhaps because I had this prolonged labor of understanding my own human nature, but it began this process of perhaps I can ventilate some of what can get so stale and funky inside this preoccupation with being human by building community with 
learning the movement patterns of, with, of, of, of other species and not just their movement patterns in the instance, but to spend time with trees in particular or any plant where you are looking at their expression of desires over time and the morphology. So apical dominance, the pointy part of the tree going up is the hunger of a tree to the sun and the optimal route to reaching the sun is the pointy part of the tree at the top, like a pine tree. And when you start looking at, well, I'm looking at an expression over time. I'm not just looking at a tree. I really softened the, the naming of others and the seeing through those namings and definitely fell into another stream of looking at time as something that my perception could, could, could be selective about how I related to. Perhaps I want to think geologically today, or I want to think at the, the, the life cycle of a gnat. I can choose. And the work brought me to that pretty quickly. It also brought me to the balance of life and death rather quickly. If one is traipsing around in the woods, wiggling one's arms like a tree and feeling one is seeing the forest, one has missed the decay under your feet and what mm -hmm. happens in the soil and what roots are doing. <laughs> I feel like the relationship that is emblematic the most of me is when I spent time with the, an aspen stand outside of Santa Fe and realizing I was amidst an organism that stretched for, for acres and acres as it was, it's their clonal colonies, one network with, with each tree is actually just an offshoot from a central network, one organism. So it is though you're dancing with, this huge dance partner. And um, that's when I realized, I think experientially, poetically, from pleasure, that building relationships beyond the human could bring so much meaning to my life, not just metaphoric so I can bring it back and be a better human, but, but reimagine who I am. And you've started a new practice more recently that you refer to as 4D studio practice. And you refer to it as a four-dimensional ocean, but it also very much has to do with experiences that you've had more recently in and with the Pacific Ocean in pondering its, its, uh, its scale and its it's kinesis and all kinds of things. You're, you're kind of, you're finding that you're learning through this, through this body of the ocean and the way that you imagined your AI companion could, could be a vehicle to learn through. I had gone to the ocean, I'd gone to San Diego to make sense of what had happened to me, I had this, I spoke earlier of this embodied language I had created to make my own meaning mm. inside myself. And that embodied language was essentially, I would take snapshot, snapshots, I would take snapshots of experiences and store them in my body. And I've since learned that that's what people with trauma do, is mm. they take snapshots of where were you standing? Where was I standing? What did it smell like? How did it feel? And we, take a, we make a postcard. Mm -hmm. I made many such postcards as a young person, 
trying to make sense of, of what was happening. And I preserved them. I learned ways to preserve them. I preserved them at the detriment of experiencing new things for a long time. But I got very creative about how I chose to preserve them. And I would uh, render them at different scales and different levels of intensity. But I preserved the kernel of truth in my body as almost like an energetic kinetic sculpture in my body. As I began to heal, when I shed this trauma, I learned that starting with the snapshot itself and drawing the lines beyond the edges of the postcard so that the energy of the event itself could release itself, drawing beyond the form and, and the arcs, the vectors, allowing them a pathway to release. That became critical to my physical healing and my, my mind-body integration. So when I went to the ocean with this intention to make sense of what I had done both in my life before by preserving these postcards and through the healing of them, and I met a body of water covering so much of our planet that exists as the simultaneous event and rippling out of the event, event rippling out of the event. That story is being told again and again and again with each wave crash, crashing on the shore. And I saw this master teacher of how I, as an embodied being, can both through nodes of pleasure and nodes of pain, ripple the, that information out to its natural conclusion in my organism and through my network of social network, of all the beings I'm networked with, and that I could apprentice with the ocean to really, really see how that can be lived. And I brought that intention and I brought myself to the water. And when the two came together and I felt the education begin as cross currents and undertoes and spray and each, each element of it, its own lesson, its own masterclass, if you're wondering how a difficult relationship might end, watch what happens when the wave crests and all of the, all of the power gets released into smaller and smaller interactions mm -hmm. until you can no longer perceive the pain. Watch the wave. <laughs> love how not deeply troubled I am, meaning in the sense that I've always felt that with posthumanism, like, why am I not having a hard time with this? Um, but because maybe I've spent more time centering um, pleasure and care and um, like observation of what kind of flourishing happens when I behave that way um, compared to what I don't enough to give me some feedback as to why yeah. This seems like pretty promising. I'm really centered on pleasure lately, perhaps out of like critical thinking fatigue that was so centered on <laughs> displeasure and looking for challenge. And we clearly know there's the possibility for challenge. And I think a lot of conversations about 
what it is to be open and porous and, and maybe not even be porous in the sense that the other transmits something and you receive it, but actually expand the notion of self to include a broader self, that that might be challenging, but it also might be incredibly pleasurable. <laughs> and I, I believe if that can be entertained, or at least be experienced as possible, how might one build a praxis of examining one's othering or examining one's self-making if there is this possibility that pleasure might be experienced along the way? And I'd venture to say from my own practice, and this is coming back to connecting pain to pleasure, connecting pleasure to pain, and that if what is known and the pleasure that we already have stoked could be galvanized as a resource to move into the spaces that are scary. And as, they, as we see opportunities to connect information in those spaces with what is already pleasurable slash expand the domain of the pleasure, we can, we can grow beyond our limits. We can grow beyond the velocity of growing beyond our limits that we thought was possible because we're not throwing ourselves off the deep end and hoping we survive. We're connecting and connecting and connecting as we go. Siobhan, I want to thank you so much. It's been really a pleasure to speak with you. And I continue to be honored by and also nurtured by your presence and your thinking and what you, uh, you continue to unfold in the world. Thank you. And the feeling is mutual. Our dialectic has been such a beautiful scaffolding, scaffold-making practice. Yeah. It's delivered me to discoveries and pleasures and challenges that I never would have found alone. The beauty of kinship. The beauty of kinship. Thank you. Thank you. This has been AI Murmurings, brought to you by the Australian Institute for Machine Learning, the Sia Furler Institute, and Slow Research Lab. The music you've been hearing is from The Resonance Canons, composed and performed by Christopher Tigner from his album, A Light Below, released in 2019 on Western Vinyl. To learn more, listen, and purchase Christopher Tigner's music, please go to wiresundertension.com. You can follow the Art Intelligence Project at artintelligence.ai. To receive updates on this podcast, subscribe on your favorite podcasting app or follow Instagram and Twitter. It's at AI underscore murmurings. I'd like to thank Anton Van Inhengel, Director of the Australian Institute for Machine Learning, Tom Haidu, Director of the Sia Furler Institute, and Sebastian Tomczyk from the University of Adelaide. I'm Carolyn Strauss, Director of Slow Research Lab. Music